Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to Uncovering Hidden Trauma, five cases where trauma was the unexpected root cause. Now, millions of people live under the pain and terror of the past, and for the most of them, the cause is more than obvious. A rape from 10 years ago writhes and squirms, wrenching at the emotions with flashbacks and nightmares, or a a constant, uncontrolled reliving of a horrific train wreck fractures relationships and erodes hope. Or a nightmarish mugging haunts and tyrannizes even decades later. Lives blighted, sometimes made even worse, by the wrong kind of therapy. But some trauma is less easy to spot, less obvious, but still capable of locking depression or generalized anxiety or disturbed sleep patterns in place. And the typical uh, symptoms of flashbacks to the trauma may not have developed, making a connection with the past hard to identify. But before I want to get into these sort of hidden causes of trauma, I just want to offer an essential caveat. So before we begin it isn't always trauma. It's important to appreciate, I think, that people fall into depressions or addictions or obsessive compulsions or many other emotional problematic behaviours without having been significantly traumatised at all. In these cases, looking for reds under the bed can cause more problems. Okay, Assuming people must have been traumatised... Uh, and all we need to do is dig up some memory, which might after all be created in therapy, it's always a risk, is to make a very dangerous assumption. As practitioners, we need to be careful not to fall into the trap of confirmation bias. Okay, so that's a big caveat. Past trauma isn't inevitably at the root of all or even most emotional problems, excepting obvious cases of post-traumatic stress disorder. But occasionally, we do find that seemingly inexplicable emotional problems have trauma at their root. And let's be crystal clear here. These are not traumas the client didn't recall until going into therapy, but rather ones they may have not linked to current difficulties prior to coming into therapy. Okay, so the memories someone's already had. See reference one of the written article. If it is the case that a seemingly unconnected trauma is in fact driving the current problem, then we should find that effective detraumatizing uh, of the memory ameliorates or even cures the current problem. So here are five cases from my own records in which trauma was found to be driving the current problem despite initially not being obvious. And you may have had similar experiences with your own clients. So case one, fainting fits the girl who enacted death. For a 15-year-old girl, Emily had received a lot of therapy when she came to see me. But as she sat in front of me with her mother on a cold day in late October, she told me all that therapy had done nothing but made it feel worse for her. And she said, the more I had to record my thoughts and think about it, the more I fainted, she told me miserably. Emily was very articulate and described in great detail how her life was blighted by continual fainting, 
But curiously, it only ever happened at school or in a school um, environment, such as on a school trip. She'd nearly drowned in a lake in France, was no longer allowed on stairs at school, and had stopped going to sleepovers for fear she might faint. And it was really impacting her life. All the neurological tests had come back clear, and it seemed this must have a psychological basis. But Emily had had therapy, up to the eyeballs, in fact. So it was a mystery. And she wondered, and her mother wondered, could I help Emily? And I asked when the fainting had started, and Emily told me it had been about two years before she came to see me. Then I asked more pointedly whether anything else had happened about that time, assuming this must have already been explored by other therapists. But Emily and her mother both looked pensive. This was evidently a new line of questioning for her. Finally, they mentioned two events that had happened while Emily had been at school. Okay. Now, firstly, Emily's lovely neighbour, Pam, a vibrant woman Emily was really close to, had unexpectedly died. And she had seemed very young for her age, this woman. She was around 70. And Emily had been distraught when she'd come back home from school and had heard the news from her father that, totally out of the blue, this loved neighbour had died. Not long after this, the family dog had been run over and killed, again while Emily was at school. And again, the memory of Emily's father gravely telling her about the sudden death of her beloved pet was clearly horrible to recount for her. Emily certainly seemed traumatised by these two memories, and I set to work rewinding these memories in that very first session. By the end of the session, the memories were deconditioned. She could think about them as past, with calm and distance. She could still feel sad about the the neighbour and and her pet dog, but the memories no longer felt horrible to recall. They were much more distanced. And I was intrigued to discover what, if any, effect this would have on the fainting. And even I doubted that she'd stop fainting. Surely it couldn't be that simple. But much to Emily's and her parents' surprise and delight, the fainting stopped. And teachers monitored her closely at first, but eventually she was allowed to resume a normal teenage life, including uh, using the stairs at school as well, so she could actually go up and down. It seems the fainting had been an unusual symptom of unresolved trauma, perhaps a metaphorical enactment of death itself. Anyway, it didn't matter because the problem was gone. Once the trauma was gone from Emily's brain, so too was the problematic symptom. Okay, so it's really worth thinking about that, how such a non-obvious disconnected symptom can actually be traced back to a traumatic or two traumatic events. Case two, hypochondria, the woman who couldn't trust her body. So just like Emily, Shirley had been at a loss as to why her life-limiting symptoms had developed. She was wealthy and healthy of body, according to her continually consulted medics, but Shirley nevertheless believed that every twinge, ache, itch or uh, faint discoloration was a sure sign of unstoppable, inexorable terminal disease. So she lived in fear that she'd be diagnosed with some untreatable um, chronic illness that would wrench her from the children and husband that she so much adored, that she so loved. 
She constantly swept the internet searching for confirmation of her worst fears. And you know what it's like when you go on Google, because any symptom can lead back to any disease, no matter how terrible. She obsessively monitored her children's health and felt that it was uh, just a matter of time before one or both would also be diagnosed with a uh, debilitating and terrible condition. And she said, you know, I've tried meditation, I've tried counseling, hypnotherapy, I've tried acupuncture and cognitive behavioral therapy, but the only thing that helps me is getting a medical check. And even then, I'm only reassured for a little while before the fear and hopelessness return. Shirley would stop eating, she'd stop socializing or even communicating with her family if she even had the slightest evidence, or evidence as she saw it, that something might be wrong with her. She'd only want to talk about her symptoms and never never anything wider, which never seemed to amount to anything according to those who tried to reassure her. Had her parents or anyone close been diagnosed with a horrible illness, I wondered. No, she said, all my family are perfectly healthy and actually quite long-lived. So I decided to try an affect bridge with Shirley. I asked Shirley to focus on that horrible feeling of being certain she or her children would be stricken with some horrible illness and suggested that maybe a memory might come to mind of a time she'd had similar feelings. And she closed her eyes and she sort of focused in on that feeling that she was familiar with. And she immediately felt a little tearful. And I reassured her we wouldn't dwell long on the feelings involved that she'd feel better very soon. After a minute or so, she suddenly opened her eyes and told me, wow, I've just had a memory come to mind, and I haven't thought about this for years. I was six or seven years old. There was this girl I knew at school. She wasn't really a friend, but I liked her, and she got sick with leukemia, I think, and I never thought she would die. And then Shirley sniffed, and a solitary tear began to glide down her cheek, and she continue telling me about this. She said, you know, we were in assembly and the head teacher, Mrs. Jenkins, asked her to come to the front to receive a reward for bravery. And we all clapped her. And she looked so thin and frail, but I still thought that she'd be okay. I didn't believe she could die. Then another girl I knew sitting next to me whispered to me that her mother had said this girl only had a month to live. And those words really struck me, absolutely terrified me. Only a month only a month to live? Okay, it was just, to me, it just seemed inconceivable that someone so young, someone my age, could only have a month to live. Now, Shirley's breath was coming like a speeding metronome. You know, she was, she looked really pained and frozen and, uh, quite terrorized by this memory. And she hadn't thought about that time in years, but realized she'd often felt that time, even though she hadn't recalled that time. So I asked her to tell me, on a scale of 1 to 10, what level of fear she felt now when she recalled that time, 10 being the most. And she instantly told me it was off the scale. Okay, She felt really scared recalling that time. And the first time she realized that little girl would die was the pinnacle, was the worst bit. The first time she really felt she herself could die and those she loved. That girl was also a metaphor for her and the ones she loved. So we use the rewind technique to bring that fear score down from a 10 plus to a 2 in the session. And in deep relaxation, I had her envisage forgetting to think about 
health or illness for long periods and having faith in her body and her children's capacity to be healthy. In the end, she told me her hypochondria improved by around 90% and she could finally live more fully without a preoccupation with death or dying. Okay, that was case number two. Case number three, panic attacks, the man who called the police. With Dan, it was different. He suffered panic attacks, a condition in which the quite common uh, PTSD element is so often missed. So Dan was a computer analyst for a large corporation, and he was as sharp as a razor. He seemed to know what I was trying to say before I knew myself, which is disconcerting when you're the therapist. But he had a problem. Rising stress had crept up on him without him really noticing. The levels, the tidal level of stress in his life had risen, and it had culminated one sickening day in an explosive way, though he didn't mention that at first. And he said to me, you know, I questioned him quite in depth, and he said, well, I was working longer and longer hours, and my marriage was suffering, I was surviving on coffee and cigarettes, and then it happened. I started having panic attacks, uh, and now I'm off work uh, with the stress of it, and I've tried tranquilizers, but they stopped me from focusing on the work I was doing at home, and, um, you know, work paid for me to have uh, CBT therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, but it was too analytical and complicated even for me. And remember, he was a computer scientist and it didn't seem to deal with my feelings, just with my thoughts. What worries me now is that I'll have um, these panic attacks forever. I'll always suffer with these attacks. Now, I knew that often people are traumatized by a particular um, or a particularly bad, perhaps the very first panic attack. That's often what traumatizes them and keeps the panic attacks happening, the memory of the first one. Subsequent panic attacks may sometimes be a kind of flashback to the first or worst panic attack. So I asked Dan, you know, thinking back now, what would you say was the very worst panic attack? And without hesitation, Dan said, the very first one. It was horrific, like a waking nightmare. And the reason it was so bad was because I didn't know it was a panic attack at the time. I thought I was dying or going completely mad. And Dan described how he'd been driving um, to work during rush hour, and he was late, and therefore getting more stressed, and getting increasingly upset about the prospect of being late. And suddenly he felt dizzy. And then he started hyperventilating, you know, run, uh, sort of breathing as though he was running hard. Uh, he was drowning in sweat and felt his hands tingling. And he said, I couldn't think straight. It was terrifying. I was certain I must be dying or going crazy. And I stopped on the hard shoulder of the motorway. And with trucks whizzing by, and I called the police, of all people. I was so crazed with fear, I didn't even realize I'd called them. I don't know why I didn't just call an ambulance or someone else. I called the police. And when the police arrived, they seemed angry, and they called an ambulance for him. And at the hospital, after having my heart checked, I was told that it was just a panic attack and to get counselling. But since then, I keep having these panic attacks, and I can't even think about driving my car. If I try to drive anywhere, I get flashbacks to that time. Okay. So Dan told me that the memory made him feel panicky just to recall it, a sure sign of trauma. It also, also felt very recent when he recalled it, as, as if time hadn't faded the memory at all. So once we deconditioned the traumatic memory, I then gave him strategies to control and prevent future panic attacks. Just like that, the panic attack stopped. Now Dan found he could drive again and was no longer haunted by memories of that first panic attack. So panic attacks are terrifying and therefore 
can be traumatizing in and of themselves. Okay, a person continually having panic attacks might be just them reenacting the PTSD from the initial experience. So when people are traumatized by an initial panic attack, no amount of breathing or cognitive techniques will necessarily help them until the post-traumatic effects of that time are dealt with properly. Case number four, obsessive compulsive disorder, the woman who hated nursing homes. So Frida was in her 70s and she was a a very neat, uh, neatly dressed woman. She was um, very correct in her manner and everything. She was plagued by an extreme case of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, to the exclusion of her husband, family and friends. Germs had become her major focus in life, but not any old germs. And she said to me, I only really care about the stuff that has been infected by a nursing home. And I noticed the words nursing home took on their own special tone. She she looked anxious just saying those words. And she felt the nursing home would get onto her in some way. I don't want nursing home on me, she would say. If Frida went outside, which she seldom did now, every time she passed someone in the street, she couldn't help but wonder if they worked in or had visited a nursing home. She would worry for days. She'd boil, wash her clothes and spend hours uh, cleansing and re-cleansing her home for hours and hours and hours a day. Okay, Frida hadn't sought therapy until now, but a new and depressing development had finally convinced her something needed to change. Her husband was considering leaving her. Okay, and They were both in their 70s, late 70s. He just couldn't stand it anymore. She constantly pleaded with him not to go out, but when he did, she would insist when he returned that he stripped naked on the porch before she'd let him back in the house. Wearing disposable gloves, she'd then collect his clothes to boil them, and she'd then make him shower, and after the shower, she'd make him take a bath and then take another shower. Okay, and he was doing all this to try to appease her. She'd encouraged him to turn up the water temperature as high as he could stand as well, so he was almost being burnt when he was cleansing himself in these ways. So what was all this about? Well, Frida had hated nursing homes ever since she was a little girl, when she'd visited her grandmother in one. And she told me that she can recall that, you know, it it smelt of death, she said. But more recently, her own mother had gone downhill fast while living in a nursing home. So when I asked Frida about this, she admitted she had horrific memories of going to visit her mother for her birthday and finding her close to death. And she said, you know, I could see my mum was dying, but no matter how much I shouted or pressed the button, no staff came. And she died and no one did anything to help. And I couldn't do anything either. And as Frida recounted this time, she trembled and wept. But this was nothing new. She told me she actually felt like that most of the time. She felt that upset most of the time. So naturally, I wondered if Frida's... uh marriage uh, destroying life shrinking ocd might have had its genesis during her mother's final moments and i used the rewind technique to take the sting out of those memories and just for good measure her memories of her visits to her grandmother's nursing home as well when frida had been really young and we found that her symptoms ameliorated very fast and eventually began to fade altogether and she no longer thought much or felt much about nursing homes at all. And her husband was extremely pleased as well. And she was able to enjoy her twilight years with her husband uh, much more 
effectively. So OCD doesn't always have a clear-cut traumatic root, but it might do, and that's the point. Case 5, depression, jealous of a phantom. So this next case is pretty unusual, but certainly not unique. Keith was traumatised not by an experience, but simply by hearing about something and then imagining it. So when I first saw Keith, he was really uh, forlorn. I got the sense that he didn't um, hold out much hope that I could help him with therapy at all. In fact, his wife was much more hopeful uh, than he was that I could lift him from the depression that sapped the energy and hope and fun from his every waking moment. Depressed people, really depressed people, don't tend to hope much. Hope has gone out of the equation. But they do tend to ruminate and mull things over and imagine bad stuff, spending a lot of time in their heads. We as practitioners need to help our depressed clients develop a little hope because hope is a major antidepressant even in those prone to mulling. Okay, In fact, the depressive effects of rumination actually seem to be negated if a person mulls a lot but still retains hope when they do so. Okay, So hope is kryptonite to depression. Anyway, Keith had little hope at first, and he felt like a victim, like things happened to him, not because of him. He was angry at his wife all the time, and I asked him uh, what he worried about the most, why he felt so angry. And he couldn't explain it at first, but after some more careful questioning, he came out with, my wife's sex life with another man. And, you know, I was not surprisingly nonplussed by this, and I asked what he meant. And Keith said uh, that, you know, Keith and his wife had been married for 35 years. And about 10 years into their marriage, she had told him about the one other boyfriend she'd had before meeting Keith. So both of them had been rather inexperienced when they got married. Okay. He hadn't been with anyone else. She'd been with one other person. Now, for some reason, she'd gone into explicit detail about her sexual experiences with this other man. Not quite sure where she'd done that. Maybe Keith had pressed her to do that. And in his mind's eye, Keith had seen his wife having all kinds of sex with this other man in his imagination. As far as he was concerned, he'd seen it all happen during their marriage and felt like she'd been unfaithful to him, even though Cognitively, he knew it had happened long before they'd even met each other. Keith had traumatized himself through his own imaginings. And these self-generated images often came back to Keith, making him feel very angry with his wife, as if in some way she'd been unfaithful. Every day he seemed to see his wife with this better man, a man whose appearance Keith himself had created. And I asked Keith, you know, what he imagined this man looked like. And she hadn't really described this man. He'd never seen a picture of him. And um, Keith said, well, he's very handsome and tall and muscular and, and so forth. Uh, though, you know, but his wife had never described this other man like that. So I suggest, suggested this phantom man would have aged by now. And I pointed out that every cell in his wife's body would have been replaced many times since she'd even known that other man, or actually teenage boy as he'd been at the time because it really had been a long time ago. But I also helped Keith process the imagined memory so that it no longer troubled him. And actually, because Keith had never spoken about this before, not even to his wife, so she didn't know why he felt so angry with her, he found just by talking calmly with me about it, the memory already felt better. Okay, 
But for good measure, I rewound the imagined scenario in Keith's mind to the point that it no longer made him feel anything at all. And amazingly, Keith began to feel more loving towards his wife, more in control and better about himself, and he began to enjoy his marriage and his life again. He reclaimed his fun, his humour, his love and his hope, and he was still prone to some depressive thinking, partly through force of habit, but we were now able to work on that and really uh, bring him out of that and enable him to leave the depression behind. This imagined man, the phantom, no longer haunted Keith because the phantom didn't exist. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Turrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog. Mm-hmm.